Tower. How are we doing, family? It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Uh, if it's your first time with us this morning, I want to welcome you again. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. Glad you could be with us today. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 14 today. If you want to grab your Bibles or turn there on your devices or follow on the screen behind me, that's, that's fine as well. First uh, Samuel 14. We're going to actually cover the whole chapter, but not read the whole chapter. That way you, you don't have to stand for that length of time. Uh, amen, somebody. You don't know when to say amen. Here it is. First uh, Samuel 14. We're just going to read through verses 1 through 12. 1 through 12. Hear the reading of God's word. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor... Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other, Sina. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will, go, or we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us. And we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, Faith Over Fear. Faith Over Fear. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you that you are always the God who speaks. You have spoken in the past. You have spoken in the present. And God, you will speak a final word one day. You will speak a final word of blessing over your people when all your purposes are accomplished. And so today we ask that you would speak to us again in your word. Help us to become more like your son Christ, the word of God in flesh. May his word go deeply into our soul and transform us inside and out. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know if you're a baseball fan or, or maybe you've had to uh, endure through a baseball game because they are long and sometimes boring. I don't call myself much of a baseball fan, but I know one thing about baseball. 
Stealing home plate in baseball is extremely difficult. Stealing home plate, in fact, is so difficult, it's, it's so rare that there's been a study done over the last 50 years on stealing home plate, and out of all of the, the bases stolen in the major leagues over 50 years, for every thousand bases that are stolen, only six are home plate. Did you catch that? Out of every thousand bases that are stolen in the major leagues, only six are home plate. That's not very good odds. And so those odds, though, did not hinder one runner in the World Series. It was the World Series 1955, game one of the World Series. The Brooklyn Dodgers are down two runs to the New York Yankees. And this player, he's on third base, and he decides he's going to go for it. He's going to try to steal home plate. And so he's leading off the base a little bit, which means you're, you're stepping off the base, getting ready to run. As the pitcher turns his head away from him, takes his eye off of the base runner, he starts to dash. He starts to sprint that 90 feet from third base all the way to home plate. He's running as fast as he can. But this is a man who's a little bit older for a major league baseball player. He's 36 years old. He's past his prime of speed. He's no longer as fast as he used to be. In fact, his hair is a little gray. He's beyond his prime, but he doesn't care. He's running as fast as he can. And this is the thing. He's running against a ball that is being thrown 90 miles an hour, less distance. It's only 60 feet from the pitcher's mound to the, to the home plate. And again, he didn't care. He runs as fast as he can, and by the time he gets there, the ball hits the glove of the Hall of Famer, uh, Yogi Berra, who's the catcher for the Yankees, hits his glove, but by then it was too late. The umpire calls him safe. The runner was Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson, in the 1955 World Series, steals home plate. One of the only times, maybe the only time that I know of, that someone has stolen home plate in the World Series. Jackie Robinson steals home plate. And what's interesting is you go back over his career, and, and he had a, an incredible career, obviously, but one of the things that's lesser known about his career is he's actually called the father of modern base stealing. Because he was one of the most risky players who was willing to take a risk to steal home plate. In fact, he holds the record among modern players 19 times he stole home plate. 19 times. So looking back on that evening, that game, this is what he said about that day. He said, I decided to shake things up. It wasn't the best baseball strategy to steal home with our team down two runs in the World Series. But I just took off and I did it. I just took off, and I did it. That was his logic. It didn't make any sense, but I just took off, and I did it. I mean, Jackie Robinson, if he was anything in his life, he was a risk taker. Now, think about it this way. What is it about a person that makes us want to take risks? What, what is it about us? I mean, some of us in the room, you, you might consider yourself a risk taker, like you're a natural risk taker. Other people might say, I'm a risk avoider. I don't want anything to do with risk. So for the risk takers, you hear that story and you think, yeah, I, I love adventure. I love trying to shake things up. I don't have to think about it. I'm just going to go. I'm going to jump first, think second, right? I'm a, I'm a risk taker. And so you think, yeah, stealing home is worth it. I'm going to go for it. I don't care what the odds are. I'm going for it. Others of you, you hear that story and you think that is the most ridiculous thing that person could have ever done on third base, 
Why, why would you do that? Your approach to life is, I'm just going to let life kind of come to me. I'm, I'm going to take it easy. What happens, happens. If I get to it, I get to it. If I never get to it, that's okay. Like uh, You're just kind of relaxed and chill. So stealing home plate has no appeal to you. And that's okay. Whether you're a risk taker or you're a risk avoider, here's what I want us to say to each other. We can agree on one thing. Both of us need courage. Because I don't know if you know this about your life, but it takes courage to go and it takes courage to stay. It takes courage to make the run and take the risk, but it also takes courage to stay in the same place and not go. You need courage for both. And so how do you get courage whether you go or you stay? So today we're continuing this series through the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, Last week we looked at the king Saul who was in a hurry. He was impatient with God, and, and because of his impatience with God, he's, he's moving too fast, he's going too fast, he wants to just get things done, and Samuel the prophet comes to him after Saul moved a little too fast, and he says, look, because of your impatience with God, because of your disobedience, the kingdom is going to be taken from you. And so Saul hears from Samuel that the kingdom's going to be taken from Saul's family, and it's going to be given to someone else, but at this point in the story, that hasn't happened yet. So we're kind of in this in-between in the story. So chapters 13, 14, and 15 are this gap. This gap where what happens is the narrator helps us see the consequences of Saul's decision, and you start to see his life fall apart. And you start to see his kingdom fall apart. And so here we are in chapter 14, and and, uh, there's a contrast between Saul and his son Jonathan. And the contrast in the text is this. Jonathan is a man of faith. Saul is a man of fear. That's it. If you want to take away the, the big, con- the big uh, idea in the context here, Jonathan is a man who is, who is marked by courageous faith, and Saul is marked by a cowardice fear. That's the difference. And so the question becomes in the text, how do we live by faith and not fear? How do we live by faith with courage and not by fear and cowardice. That's what I want to look at today. So first, if you're taking notes, let's look at the life of faith. The life of faith. Look at verse 1 with me. The story begins like this, and it's a rather long story, so I'm just going to walk through it together as we go. Uh, But look at verse 1. It opens like this. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Now, remember for a second, if you were here last week, the reason Saul was in a hurry, the reason he was impatient, is because the Philistines were coming upon them. And Saul was starting to panic because the threat was rising. And so Saul is at this point hiding. He's hiding in a cave, worried about what's going to happen with the Philistines. And now his son Jonathan looks over to his armor bearer and he says, I think we can do it. I think we can take these guys. Let's, this threat is not that big of a threat. Let's, let's go for it. And, and the Bible tells us that he didn't tell his dad because his dad was hiding in a cave, afraid. And, and so he knew that if he told his dad, his dad was going to get you know, upset. He wasn't going to approve of this. This isn't going to fly with them. So he just decides to go out on his own. Even though the Philistines had more money, they had more weapons, they had more people, Back in the earlier times, it said, in the earlier chapter, it said that uh, the troops were as the sand on the seashore. And Jonathan says, 
I think you and I got this. I mean, it is a show of courageous faith. But listen, it's courageous and yet beautifully balanced. Listen to what he says in verse 6. This is incredible. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. See, some of y'all, you don't know when to say amen. That, that's it right there. He, nothing can hinder him from saving by many or by few. It doesn't matter. He's saying, my faith is not in myself. It's in the Lord. It's in the Lord. And if nothing can hinder the Lord, he's saying, then it doesn't matter how many Philistines there are. It doesn't matter how many Israelites there are. There could be one Philistine or there could be one million Philistines. He says, it doesn't matter because my God is more powerful than any of them. And so he's saying, my my faith is not resting in me. God can do the impossible. God can save his people no matter how many people we have. And yet, here's the balance. The Lord is also free. He says it like this. He says, it may be that the Lord would work for us. In other words, the Lord can do whatever he wants. He is free within himself to act however he pleases. In other words, some of the other translations uh, translate it like this. It says, perhaps the Lord will. So there's this beautiful balance. The Lord can do whatever he wants. Nothing can hinder him. And yet perhaps he will or he won't. So this is faith right here. Listen to this. This is what faith sounds like. Nothing is impossible for God, and yet nothing can be imposed on God. You catch that? Nothing is impossible for God, and yet nothing can be imposed upon Him. In other words, God is still God. We are not God. And so Jonathan makes a deal with his buddy. He, he looks over at him and he says, okay, here's the deal. We're going we're gonna to go with this for a moment, but when we get to the Philistines... We're going to look for a sign. If God is in this, he's going to give us a sign. And so uh, he says, if the Philistines say to us, wait, then that means the Lord is not calling us forward. He's not going to fight with us. But if the Philistines say, come on up, then we know the Lord is with us. He's leading us in this. He's going to fight. That's the sign, right? And so uh, they, they go up to the, fair, to the, to the Philistines. And uh, as soon as they get there, they interact with these guys, and they, you know, lo and behold, they say, come on up. We're going to show you a thing, which means, yeah, you're going to lose. And Jonathan, you can just, you can almost imagine, he, he just turns to his buddy with a grin on his face and says, come on up after me. The Lord has given them into our hands. I mean, in other words, Jonathan is saying, this is not about us. This faith that he had was about God, not himself. I want you to catch that. Listen, faith lives with the freedom of God's favor. Faith lives with the freedom of God's favor. Or listen to it this way. The aroma of faith is freedom. It's freedom. Jonathan was either free to act or free to not act. Jonathan was free to to do what the Lord had called him to do. There was this aroma of freedom. And some of us have to hear that this morning because, listen, I want you to be set free. I want you to be set free because many of us, the accent of faith in our life, the emphasis of faith, the priority of faith is us. 
It's us. It's, it's about how much I believe. It's about how much I obey. It's about how much I do. It's about how much I trust. It's about me and me and me and what I can do. And what Jonathan is showing us here is his faith wasn't about him at all. His faith was about his God. It's why Jesus says later in the New Testament, Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. What is Jesus saying? The mustard seed, if you've ever seen a mustard seed, it, it's very tiny. I don't know if it's really the, the smallest seed in the world, but they say it might be. It, it, is, the, it is so tiny. It, just in your hand, it's just a little tiny, tiny, tiny little seed. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter how big your faith is. It doesn't matter how bold your faith is. It just matters that you have faith. Because faith, listen, faith is not about the size of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. It's about the God that you are putting your faith into. That, that's what Jonathan is saying to his armor bearer. This is not about us. It's not about me. And because it's not about me, now I'm freed up. I'm freed up to say this God is incredibly powerful. See, faith has the freedom to boldly act on the impossible. On the impossible. I want to ask you this morning, what have you stopped believing God to do? What have you stopped believing God to do? Or to ask it a different way, what have you stopped praying for? What, what have you stopped praying for? See, I want to challenge us today to live in the freedom to act upon the impossible. Because there, there, are, there are things in your life where I guarantee you, you you've stopped dreaming. You've stopped praying. You've stopped asking. I don't know what it might be. It might be your marriage that's been struggling for years and you just decided this, this is not going to work. We're just going to be roommates for the next 40 years. This, this is a terrible marriage and I don't know how God could ever do it. And so you stop praying. You've stopped asking. You've stopped seeking. Or maybe for you, it's, it's your kids, and, and you've got some kids that are in some trouble right now, and, and you've, you've come to the Lord in the past, and you've said, Lord, I need you to show up in their life, but now you've given up because you haven't seen anything happen. You haven't seen God do the impossible yet, and so you've stopped. Or maybe for you, it's, it's friends in your life who you, you've said they're, they're too far gone. They're, they're never going to come to Jesus. They're never going to have a faith in him. And so you stop praying for them. I, I don't know what it is, but, but there's something in your life. I guarantee you there's things in my life I have stopped praying for because they seem too big. Faith, the aroma of faith is the freedom to just say, I can still ask. I can still ask. God can do the impossible. There, there's nothing that can hinder him. With many or with few, he can do it. But here's the beautiful balance. Faith also humbly submits so as we don't impose on God. You catch that? It means, this is the beautiful balance of biblical faith. It means God is still God and we are not. God is still God and we are not. Now, some in our day might say, that. well, that's not faith. Faith means that you have no doubt. Faith means you have no other options. Faith means I decree and I declare this is what the Lord is going to do. I'm going to get myself in trouble here, but you don't decree anything. God decrees. God decrees. 
God declares, we request. And God says, like little children, we can come to our parent and we can ask and we can request, but I don't know how it works in your family. My kids don't decree anything. You can't decree it, but you can ask it. You can request it. You you can say, God, I I want this. But then at the end of the day, you're going to have to say, God, you are God. And so perhaps the Lord is not in this. Perhaps the Lord's plan is something else. Perhaps it may be that he's going to fight for us in another way. Perhaps it is that God has something better than what I'm asking for. And so he's saying no to this so he can say yes to something else. But it's still my freedom to ask. I have the freedom to ask. And then I have to have the faith to submit. You hear that? See, sometimes it takes more faith to submit than to ask. It takes more faith to just say, I'm, I'm going to trust the Lord. I've asked him and I've asked him and I'm going to keep asking him, but I'm going to submit to he is God. And I am not. I am not. That's what faith sounds like. It, it, it asks for the impossible, but it never imposes. And so what's the opposite of that? How do you, or what happens if we don't live by that kind of faith? Well, we live by fear. We live by fear. And this is the second point, the life of fear. Let's pick up the story again in verse 24. Jump down to 24. The story goes on like this. And the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So Saul had laid, laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now, pause there for a moment. While Jonathan and his buddy are out there fighting in this secret battle, uh, Saul, his father, decides that he's going to create his own little plan where Jonathan's was based on faith in the Lord, and, and it's kind of this proactive faith. Saul is in reactionary fear, making ridiculous claims. He starts to make an irrational oath And he says, all of my soldiers, all of my people, no one's going to eat anything until we win. No one's going to eat anything. We're we're all going to fast. Now, it sounds religious, right? It sounds like, oh, we're, we're going to fast. We're going to trust the Lord. But it's really just a show for Saul. We're going to see that in a minute. It's really just outward appearance where what Saul is really wanting to do is to manipulate God into doing what he wants. So rather than trust God, He's going to try to trick him. He's going to try to trick him into doing something that really Saul wants to happen. And so it's this religious superstition. It's not real spirituality. And so the troops, they, like good, obedient troops, they obey their king and they say, okay, we're not going to eat. And they go on to battle. And uh, as they're going to battle, they walk through a forest. and, And the Bible says that they see a honeycomb falling on the ground in the forest. And everybody, because they're terrified of Saul and his oath and his curse, they they don't touch it. But Jonathan, who, remember, he was away during that time. He He was fighting this little secret battle he didn't tell anybody about. He missed the warning. He missed the memo and didn't know that he wasn't supposed to eat anything. And so uh, Jonathan comes upon it and he says, ooh, that looks good. I'm hungry. I'm going to have some honey. And so he dips his hand in there, grabs some honey, eats it. And the Bible says in verse, what was it, 27, it says, his eyes became bright. 
In other words, it, it brought joy, it brought refreshment, he, he's ready to fight, he's, he's excited now, but then everybody else looks at him and they say, what are you doing? What are you doing? How could you eat? Didn't you hear what your dad said? Saul told us if we eat, we're cursed. Notice the difference between their situations. Twice it's repeated in verse 28 and in verse 31. Uh, it says that the people, the troops, were faint. They were faint. They were tired. They were exhausted. They were worn out. And then it says about Jonathan, he was bright. He was bright. He's refreshed. He's full. Jonathan picks up on this difference between them in verse 29. Look at what he says. It says, then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. See, Jonathan is living by faith, and, and because of this faith, he is a free man. He is a free man. I want you to hear this. Look, he, he had the freedom to either attack or not attack. Whatever the Lord wants, we're good. He had the freedom to eat or not eat. Whatever, whatever the Lord wants, I'm good. He, he is a free man that, that is just enjoying his life, enjoying what God has done because he's trusting in the Lord. And then Saul, who's a man of fear, because of his fear, has stolen not only his own freedom, but the freedom of everyone else around him. In other words, Jonathan, uh, Saul has taken on this burden of no one's going to eat, we're going to suffer, we're going to be in pain, we're going to tough it out so we can manipulate God into doing something. And everyone else around him was under his burden. Jonathan says, my father has troubled the land. He's burdened them. See, fear lives with the burden of legalism. With the burden of legalism. Listen to this. If the aroma of faith is freedom, the aroma of fear is burden. It's burden. Burdened by rules, burdened by shoulds, burdened by irrational expectations. Legalism is often the fruit of fear. It's us being afraid that, that uh, we might lose approval. It's us being afraid that I might lose control. It's, it's me being afraid that I might lose my influence. And so because I'm afraid, i got to take control. i got to manipulate God into doing what I want him to do. And so I'm going to create all these rules and regulations and these things that are unnecessary, these burdens around my life so that I can prove to myself and to God that I can do this. And it's all out of fear. It's fear. One person defines legalism like this, trying to leverage God's favor with our behavior. I like that. Trying to leverage God's favor with our behavior. In other words, legalism really believes that God isn't free. God isn't free. God, God does whatever I want him to do if I do the right thing. He's not really free. I'm the one who's free. I'm the one who's in control. I'm the one who, who if I do the right things, then God will do what I want him to do. And then it takes on these irrational burdens. These irrational, they, they, they make no sense to try to strong-arm God and others into action. I want you to ask yourself this. What's the aroma 
of your life? What's the aroma of your life? Is it freedom or burden? Is it freedom or burden? Now, if you want to be real daring, ask somebody who's close to you. Ask somebody who, you know, maybe your spouse or, or your best friend or, yeah, a- ask your spouse, right? A- a- ask, ask your roommate, a- ask somebody who's close to you and knows you, what, what is it like to be on the other side of me? What's, what's it like to be on the other side experiencing who I am as a person? Is, is the aroma of my life freedom or is it burden? What's it like to be in this relationship? What's it like to be under my leadership? What's it like to be married to me? What's it like to be working with me? What, what's it like? Is, is the aroma of my life, do I create around me people who are free? Or do I create around me people who are burdened? It's a scary question. It's a terrifying question. But here's what I want to propose to us today, because i got to close. I'm running out of time. What I want to suggest is that fear is at the root of that. In other words, there's unnecessary burdens that we place on others because we've placed them on ourselves. We, We are terrified. We are afraid to just simply enjoy who God is. To just say, God is for me. He is God and I am not. I am coming to him in his grace. We are afraid to eat freely of the honeycomb. We're afraid to trust that he's bigger and greater than what we actually face. We are afraid to believe that he just might be for me without any manipulation or trickery. He just simply favors me. Maybe that's you today. And I I think... Uh, all of us get into that place. And what happens is the reason we get into that place is because we've taken our faith off of God and put it into ourselves. That's the key here. The difference between Jonathan and Saul is that Jonathan believes in the Lord. Saul believes in himself. The, The faith, the object of your faith will determine your freedom. It'll determine your, the freedom that you have within your life, the freedom that you, that you give to others, the, the freedom that you live and walk in gives you freedom. So how are we set free of this legalistic burden? Let's look at the life of freedom. This is the last point, the life of freedom. Look at verse 36. It says, Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever, you, or do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. Now, Saul, remember, he, he sends out these guys to go fight the Philistines. They're out there fighting. And now he decides, we're going to finish them off. We, we're going to send in some more troops and we're going to end this battle and, and be done with it. And uh, the priest raises his hand. Hey, uh, I don't know if I have any authority here, but maybe we should ask God. Maybe we should ask God. And Saul, you know, at this point, he's, he's still moving in that religious direction. In fact, the longer the story goes, the more religious Saul gets, which is ironic, isn't it? The longer the story goes, the more religious and legalistic Saul gets. He's, he's adding all kinds of religious things. And so he says, yeah, sure, we'll pray. And so Saul prays, and, and the Lord doesn't answer him. And Saul, of course, thinks it's someone else's fault. Saul thinks, hey, there's somebody here who sinned. That's why God's not answering our prayers. And so 
Again, in a religious act, he says, we're going to cast lots to find out who it is. Casting lots in the Old Testament was the way to determine God's will. It's kind of like rolling the dice, but you're, you cast the lot, and so he, he, has, um, he has everybody divided into two groups. There's Saul and Jonathan, and then there's Israel, and they cast the lots, and the lot falls to Saul and Jonathan, which means Israel's off the hook. So Israel escapes the judgment. Now it splits up into Jonathan and Saul. They cast the lot again, and now it falls to Jonathan. And Saul says, what have you done? What have you done? Which is ironic. You go back in the story, and when Saul had sinned, remember Samuel comes to Saul, and he says, what have you done? And now Saul is on the other end of that. And Saul is saying, what have you done? And Jonathan confesses his so-called guilt. He says, he tasted honey. I tasted some honey. And then the next phrase, translators uh, struggle to translate because it's a little vague there, but the ESV translates it as kind of this submissive statement. It says, here I am, I will die. Other translations try to uh, translate it as a sarcastic question because the, the Hebrew is a little vague there. It, it can be like this, and now I must die? Now I must die after I eat honey? And now I have to die? Now, you can kind of take it either way. I lean towards what the ESV says because I think it, it fits better Jonathan's moment. He, he seems to be willing to submit to whatever the Lord has for him. And so it seems that might fit. But either way, however you take it, whatever your translation is, what really shines through here is how Saul shows his heart. In verse 44, this is what Saul says, God do so to me and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. In other words, Saul is saying to his own son, he's saying to his own son, God is either going to do this to me or he's going to do it to you. And if the choice is between me and you, I'm choosing you, Jonathan. You're going to die. Now the people who are listening to this, they stand up and they say, no, no, no. Jonathan is not going to die. Jonathan will never die because Jonathan has been faithful. Jonathan is not guilty. Jonathan's done nothing wrong. In fact, he saved us from the Philistines. And so then the people not only stand up for him and say to Saul, basically, we're not going to deal with your burdens anymore. We're, we're not going to put up with this. Enough is enough. They not only say things, they act. Look at verse 45. It says, so the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. The Hebrew word there for ransom means to release from bondage by payment. To release from bondage by payment. It's the word that's used uh, all the time throughout the Old Testament for prisoners or slaves or people who are on death row. But the idea is that you're being released because someone else pays for it. Now, we're not told exactly the details here. We're just told that it happens. And so basically, here's what I want you to see. The contrast is Saul says, if the choice is between me and you, Jonathan, I'm choosing you. You're going to die. The people say, if the choice is between us and Jonathan, we're going to pay. We're going to pay for him to be free. We're going to ransom him so he can be set free. See, listen, freedom often comes at the cost of another. Freedom comes at the cost of another. In March of 2018, there was a lone attacker who... Uh, took several people hostage at a supermarket in southern France. 
And you may have heard this on the news back then. This was a few years ago. Uh, but witnesses later said that as he walked into the supermarket, he had a gun in one hand and a knife in another hand. And so people immediately started to panic. They started to scatter and hide. And uh, some people even hid in a meat locker. And he immediately took all these people into hostage. The police show up, and there's a hostage situation now where they're negotiating with this attacker. And uh, basically, the police are trying to figure out the best way to handle the situation. And one of the police officers, his name was uh, Arnaud Beltram, he offers to trade places with one of the hostages. He says, if this is the situation and it's me or him, I'll go in and take his place. And so the attacker says, okay, deal. He releases one of the hostages and the officer gets detained and he, bring, he comes in. While he was in there, he loses his life to injuries. Later on, his pastor, a Catholic priest, would later reflect on this man's sacrifice. And I want you to hear his words and we'll close. He says, how was he allowed to take such a risk? It seems to me that only his faith can explain the madness of this sacrifice, which is today the admiration of all. He understood, as Jesus told us, that there is no greater love than to give one's life for another. The gospel shows us that freedom, listen, freedom comes at the cost of another person. God doesn't choose to save himself in the gospel. God chooses to give himself. God takes the risk of redemption. He came from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. He came for those held hostage by guilt and by shame. He came for those held hostage under the burden of performance. He came for those held hostage with the threat of death. Jesus said, I came not for the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said, I came not for the healthy and the, and, and the free. I came for those who were sick and who were burdened, those who needed to be free. And so Jesus came proclaiming liberty to the captive, sight to the blind. But how would he do it? How would he set us free? It was by a ransom. It was by his own ransom. Jesus ransomed us with his life and death for us. See, freedom would come at the cost of God's own blood. God's own blood would be the cost of our ransom. Jesus didn't leave us to ourselves like Saul. Jesus didn't say, it's me or you and I choose myself. Jesus rather offered his life for our life. On the cross, he's taking all that we deserved. On the cross, he's taking all of our shame, all of our burdens, all that we couldn't carry. On the cross, he's taking all the fears that were deepest and haunting. On the cross, Jesus is choosing us over himself. Jesus is choosing our freedom over his. Jesus is choosing our life over his. Jesus is choosing our hope and our thriving over his. For his people. It's freedom in him. So do you need the freedom to live by faith today? Because that's exactly what Jesus gave us. The hope of the gospel is that Jesus came to set us free. That we would be free indeed. It's by his love. It's by his grace and his mercy that we have a God who is God. He, he has the ability and the power to transform us. And in his freedom, he chooses that. He makes it his own choice to say, I've come for you.
to set you free. Let's pray. Oh God, you are God and we are not. And so we ask for the impossible and yet we never impose. Lord, give us the courage to live by faith. Give us the patience to live by faith. Give us the the incredible mercy that you so offer and that we so need. Lord, we ask today that as we move towards the table, you would remind us once again of your love and kindness in your son Christ. In whose name we pray.